Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Crosswires. It's James here. You're listening to the Variety Tech Podcast. That's, that's how I'm going to describe the show from now on, uh, where we talk about all sorts of interesting topics and things that maybe maybe have a, a positive impact on technology. Um, so I'm not quite sure why I've invited my guest this week. <laughs> I'm waiting, I was waiting for that reaction. No, uh, my guest this week has been someone I've known for far too long. I think he'd agree. And who has an amazing insight into sort of pro- uh, programming um, or coding, if you want to use that term, as well as contributing to and I guess leading an open source project. But folks, please welcome to the show, Joel Drapper. Joel, how are you doing? Thanks very much, James. Good, good to be here. Good to have you. We, I've, I still have to count it, but I think we're coming close to the 15 years that we've known each other, which is... Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. How, how has that happened? I mean... Yeah, I no idea. So, Joel, tell people a little bit about yourself. What, what do you do right now? What's your sort of your primary focus at the moment? Yeah, so uh, I'm a software engineer, primarily uh, doing like web development. So I don't do anything native at the moment. I'm kind of interested in exploring that space. Uh, but currently uh, working with a small uh, startup uh, that do search engine optimization technology. So they kind of analyze your content and, and competitors and um, give you kind of like insights on how you can improve. In my free time, I also maintain a number of like free open source uh, software libraries for uh, the Ruby programming language. Yeah, so that that takes up a lot of my a lot of my time now as well. Also, and you're a you're a podcaster as well. You and your um, your co-host Colin do now. Is it Rooftop Ruby? Is that the show? Yeah, that's the one. Awesome. Yeah, so we started that I think something like three months ago. I might have that wrong. I'm terrible with dates. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty new podcast. It's very. I would say it's not exactly a general tech podcast it's very specifically designed for uh like experienced ruby developers who kind of just want to hear a couple of uh other engineers like talk about various questions and and issues and uh design patterns and things in 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 that space so it's it's very niche so it's, it's inside baseball for Ruby devs, basically. It's a lot right. of in, insight. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know, you never know. We might have some Ruby devs listening to this, this episode. So do go and check it out. But Joel, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is because you've been programming for a very long time, literally as long as I've known. In fact, it's how we met. I hired Joel. I don't know if I, don't know if I did I ever pay you? Yeah, you paid. Okay, I paid. That's good. Um, I paid Joel to do some development work for me for a very old WordPress site. And somehow we became friends through that process. But Joel, I mean, your, your, your journey, you are entirely self-taught, right? You don't have yeah. any formal qualifications in the, develop, in the computer science or development space. No, I, I mean, I pretty much don't have any formal qualifications in any space. So, okay. um, do you have, I mean, sorry to, are you, did you end, because I mean, I hope you don't mind, you were homeschooled, right? So, yeah. 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 Did you get any British certified I English think maths? I have, I think I have English and maths, like GCSE equivalent, but I, yeah, beyond that, I, I haven't really done anything. Wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, without trying to, you know, really, really exaggerate here, Joel really has done well to say that he does not have a degree or a master's or anything like that 
you know, you've worked for some big names in tech and we won't name it mostly because we don't want to give them any promo, right? Um, <laughs> not so much about who you've worked for, but just we don't want to promote that particular company. But you, you know, I remember you getting headhunted for a huge company. I'm like, mm-hmm. what? So yeah. Do you want to tell people a bit about how you got started and what maybe what got you interested in in coding in the first place? Yeah, sure. So you mentioned I've been I've been programming for a long time. I I haven't. It depends on what you call programming. Mm. So if you count like HTML, CSS, and maybe and like a few occasional copy paste sprinkles of JavaScript, then I then I've been programming for quite a while. So like since I was probably. I don't know, like 14 years old, something like that. But I, yeah, so I, I basically started out, I was really, really, really bored one day. And I was like pestering my parents, like, what should I do? What should I do? I'm so bored. Um, and my dad said, well, why don't you build a website? And um, this must have been when, before I was, this must have been when I was like 10 or 11, actually. So it kind of depends where you, where you, mm. where you say it started. But I think so me and my my brothers and sisters had this game where we were like special agents and so the first website that I made was basically it was like this portal that you could go into to find information like profiles on people and like what crimes they had committed and things <laughs> and like what they were suspected of so I basically coded this up and it had the cool, the coolest thing to me was making an authentication system for it. Like this idea that I could build something that you could log into and have like special ac- secret access to this information that no one else could access. So I've got to stop you there. Knowing both of our, our um, passions for security, I, I want right. to know, I want to know what this was built on. <laughs> right. So, so this was HTML, CSS and JavaScript and the password was hard coded in the HTML page in a bit of um, JavaScript that I had copied and pasted. So it, it wasn't exactly secure, but it worked for the game. Fair, fair play. So, and, so uh, no pass keys, no 2FA? No, no, no. Yeah, so that's kind of where I started. And I really enjoyed the, like, the fact that, you know, with basically with nothing, a laptop and a bit of time, you could basically make anything happen. And it was so cool. So from there, I kind of started kind of just gradually doing more and more stuff. I met some friends who are, who are about the same age who were, who were doing similar things. And we started a little company uh, and I got kind of more and more into front end development and design and user experience uh, and kind of did that for quite a while. And then I eventually ended up getting a job when I was 17 at a website development marketing agency. And um, so I worked there for a few years as a front-end developer and then kind of gradually over time, like got deeper and deeper into that and then eventually ended up working uh, in an agency where I was kind of a partner in the agency. You know the story here. Um, so I'm trying not to laugh. I'm really trying not to laugh at this point because this is a time that me and Joel actually worked together. Yeah, like we Joel did. was Joel was my boss for right. what all of six months. Oh, I don't. I have no idea. It was bad. Anyway, God, like, that maybe is a story for another time. But Joel, sorry, carry on. My apologies. Yeah. So so basically, so up to this point, I've been basically entirely front end, uh, entirely like markup 
and um you know accessibility and style and design like everything in the front end but nothing kind of that i would really call actual programming not really programming any kind of logic or anything like that um just hadn't been exposed to it really anyway so we're working on this project and you know the deadline is looming and the the front end side of the project was like really on track like everything was done um back end not so much like it was falling behind and so i just decided like well i'll see if i can help out and so the back end was ruby on rails and i just kind of went on the ruby on rails guides and figured out roughly what i was doing and kind of started contributing um got a lot of help from other people um but basically was just trying to get this one project over the hill if that makes sense and i loved it so much when i realized how like when i realized a few basic concepts um i just i just enjoyed it so much that i wanted to carry on doing that and and you did and i think you went on went to correct me if i mean you went on to do a bit more sort of freelancing stuff and then yeah so so i was freelancing then for i i think a couple of years after that uh and then ended up uh, going to work for Shopify for uh, for a few years. You you actually moved over. You had to move over to Canada, didn't you? Like that was. I did. I I had to. I had to do a few. I had to tell them that I had been programming for uh, more years than I actually had at this point. It was like one and a half or something, two years. And then, but like interview went really well. They they took me out to Canada uh, and actually moved the whole family out there, mm. and that was great. Eventually got the chance to move back to the UK. Uh, and uh, in fact, then like, you know, COVID happened and everyone, everyone was working remotely from that point on. So I was already remote at that point. Didn't really make any difference, difference to me. Didn't they end up closing um, their offices, Joel, in the end? Um, yeah, I think they lot- did. I think they did. Mm. Um, like a lot of companies will have done, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they've reopened them again now, but um, yeah, uh, then, then I got laid off. And that is when I basically, I basically, there are a few things that I wanted to do. Like when, when you're programming, you end up kind of noticing areas of like the code that just seem to come up again and again that just don't feel quite right. They feel like really awkward. And uh, one of the areas for this for me, especially like in my background and doing front end was like, the way that you kind of build the, the way that like the front end of a web application interacts with the back end of a web application was just really, really awkward. And I wanted to really solve that problem and, and basically take a lot of the experience I had doing the back end and kind of bring it into some new front end tooling. Anyway, so when I got laid off, um, I had some severance pay and I had a few months kind of margin, I guess. Um, and so. I spent like seven months just working full time on open source software, uh, building this library. Yeah, that was that was really fun, uh, and then eventually ended up getting the job where I'm at now. So that's kind of yeah. I've been programming I think for like six seven years in total, all in. So you would I mean, and, and it's an interesting point you've raised because I I guess I would have always seen people who code maybe coding versus programming is an interesting one because you know you can say you're a web a front-end if you're a front-end developer 
you yeah. are potentially working in what JavaScript, HTML, CSS, but I'm a- yeah, I, I think I think that well, JavaScript you could definitely say is programming. Mm. It's, it's like HTML is just describing it's it is using code, but it's but it's really just like wrapping specific bits of text or images or that kind of thing in markup that describes what that thing is. And then CSS is basically saying like for all of these specific things that I'm going to select, um, this is how I want them to look. And, and some very basic behavior, I think as well as CSS, but in JavaScript, you actually get into logic. Like there are conditional things. There's like, like classes and objects and, and all the things that you'd find in a, in a normal programming language. Yeah. in javascript um i just didn't really do much of that kind of javascript before no you you were v- very heavily because we were going back to that team of youngsters you yeah. were focused on the front end side whereas others did the, the php stuff um, right because you, you guys did a lot of wordpress work which is how i found you to do the, the wordpress site yeah we did a bit of, we did a bit of wordpress we did a bit of um python and django but like I, I never learned Python, and I, I at the time, I didn't, I couldn't even tell you what a class is. Uh, I, I didn't understand classes until like six years ago when I started started Ruby. So let, let's because one of the things you know that I will really give Joel credit for. Joel is very keen on helping people learn. Yeah, and Joel, when that when I, so I I mean look, anyone who knows me knows. So I was working as what I mean officially my title was uh, company secretary, but I was basically <laughs> doing the day to day admin of a business, trying to run customer support, and trying to manage the people side of a team. Joel's face, Joel's just smiling because we we obviously can't share exactly what happened to that company, but I will. C- I can edit this out if you want. But I will say this. When you've got a managing director who's trying to put his Primark trainers as company expenses, that's mm. what I had to deal with. That wasn't me, by the way. No, that was no, that was not Joel. <laughs> that was definitely not. No, you were good. You were like, you Thanks. honestly, just for the record, Joel was completely innocent in any wrongdoing. But Joel got me, we were doing a, was it like a hack weekend where we were, actually went up to um, the client's office for like a whole weekend? Hmm, I can't, I can't remember. It was, it was a, it was a big project and we went up and we stayed in London. And obviously I was there to make sure that no one was being idiots with the company debit cards and trying to manage things. Um, but Joel said, well, why are you here? Why don't you actually learn some Ruby? So you got me on Treehouse. You encouraged me to get on Treehouse, which I'd used before for front-end mm-hmm. stuff, and actually start mm-hmm. trying to learn Ruby. Now, this is kind of where I want... Before we talk about some of the open-source stuff, because that's really cool, and we've talked so much with people like Tom Lawrence and Nick from a Linux Experiment, and, of course, Joss from, from Nextcloud about how important open-source is. But before we go down that route, Joel, if people are wanting to learn a... Now, this is a back-end programming language isn't it in terms of ruby yeah um, yeah now can you in as simple a terms as possible and i'm sorry to put you on the spot when we say front end and back end sure at a very simple level what what do we mean by those two terms okay so basically uh we mean code that is executing on a server that's that's back-end code okay and code that is executing in your browser, that's front-end code. Gotcha. So usually the back-end code is um, doing things like authentication. 
connecting to a database, um, doing a lot of like domain specific logic for that application. And then it's sending quite plain data back to the front end, which is then rendering in your browser what you see on the screen. And like, um, so, so for example, like the style of a button, that's front end code. Okay. Maybe like an animation that happens when you click a button, that's front end code. Gotcha. But what actually happens when you submit a form, that's usually back end code. Is that why, Joel, then? So if it's been rendered at a browser level, is that why, right. uh, for example, between different browsers? And I, you know, I always remember when I transitioned to the Mac, because me and you, well, you transitioned after I did to the Mac. Um, yeah. But I always remember moving to a Mac, whereas Windows was very, you know, very boring buttons, whereas Mac OS would have nice fancy ones. And that's because the browser's interpreting the instructions in the front-end code, the HTML, the CSS, differently. Yeah. Yeah, so if you if you render a button on a web page and you don't specifically style it, like you don't say, I want to take control of exactly how this button looks, then the browser is responsible for styling that button. And on macOS, they use like the native button look. Mm-hmm. And on Windows, they use the native button look for Windows. And so they, they look quite different. Uh, you can You can, of course, like, take control and style buttons exactly how you want them like and and they'll probably look exactly the same on windows or mac uh, or or pretty close and again Um, just just to be clear so html css and javascript are all running browser side yeah or client side you can run javascript you can run javascript on the server and use it for your back end as well but it's not the same runtime got you um you've got like something running in your browser that's then connecting to something running on a server. Okay. Whereas Ruby, um, PH, would PHP be server-side? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Ruby, PHP, um, you're going to hate me for this. I know. Well, no, because you used to deal with stuff. ASP.net was oh, all. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was all. Um, yeah, you can, you can run a lot of this stuff on the on the client now if you want to. Okay. Um, but, I mean, usually it doesn't make sense to, to run Ruby on the client. Like you can technically run Ruby through um, this thing called WebAssembly, um, which basically allows you to run, like use any programming language that supports uh, WebAssembly. Uh, you can use that in, for the things that happen in the browser. But typically, for the kinds of applications that I build, it ju- that just doesn't make any sense. Like the the front end stuff is very basic and it's very focused on just styling and and layout, and then everything else happens in the back end. That's really cool. All right. So for someone wanting to start off, let's let's because you are a, a back end developer, because you yep. are a, a developer, let's start with sort of if if you were if someone came up to you right now and said, Joel, I want to learn how to code, I want to learn how to program, where do you point them to? What language, what what set of resources and what maybe top three tips would you maybe give for someone starting out? Yeah. So I'm pretty biased because I love ruby and i think it's amazing I, I i would definitely recommend i think like ruby is a very complicated language but it's also quite easy to read and understand what it's doing like it is it is incredibly complicated and it's also incredibly simple depending on kind of how you look at it but i think i think that i would recommend ruby as a as a really good place to to start yeah so so i would grab a book called practical object oriented design in ruby Read that and see if you enjoy it. 
you, you don't even have to like start writing and executing the code. I think this book is so accessible that you could pretty much just read through it and and have a good idea of like, does this way of thinking about systems like really work with my brain? Like, do I enjoy this kind of thing? And, you know, if you do, then start experimenting, like try and try and use all of the examples in that book uh, and get them running and then like tweak them and make your own stuff. Another book that's really excellent, I'd say, is a book called Grokking Algorithms. And this is basically, it's, it sounds it sounds pretty intimidating, but this uses like cartoons and, and, and like really cool like hand drawings to explain how some algorithms work. And it kind of makes them really accessible. Like I've actually been over like a bunch of these algorithms with my nine-year-old boy. Uh, and we like, like he is able to grasp a lot of this stuff. It's, it's like so well described and explained i think i I think it makes it really accessible so that's that's another good one to start out with i think and what about on because as i mentioned you pointed me in the direction of treehouse what about online learning portals because let's be really clear there are so many course providers out there online course providers and not all are created equal do you have any go-to that you because everyone has a different learning style right yeah, I I don't have a go-to because it's not really my learning style. Okay. And I haven't really been I've not really been asked that question recently either, so I haven't done any recent <laughs> research in the area. I know that um yeah, I'd recommended Treehouse to you. I don't know if Treehouse is even a thing anymore. I think it is. Let me um, let me have a look. I think they are still a thing. Before, I was going to say um I'm not sure what, do you know what? I'll try and, Okay, folks. What I will do is I will try and find some um that look half decent i'll run them by you joel before this episode goes out okay yeah if if you get on well with books like there are a ton of of books on ruby uh and i'd i'd encourage you to to try to build something simple using ruby and rails and like follow follow a tutorial because what you really don't want to do is like try to work on something that's so complicated you don't get any success i think the reason that Ruby on Rails is so good for beginners is you can follow a tutorial and like build your own blog or something in a few hours and like it will work locally, you know? So, so you get that real sense of, of achievement. Like I've built something and it's so cool. It actually works. And then you can kind of just go from there. Well, what if I add another field? What if I try to add some logic so that, um, you know, this is required or something, you know, you can kind of just like build an experiment. I highly recommend um, doing that if you're interested. And you can, you with Ruby, of course, you can install this on your own machine to do it. You don't need server. You yeah, can, you don't need any servers. No, yeah. you can do this. Uh, and if you're on a Mac, is it, are we still recommending Homebrew these days? Yeah, I mean, I, so I would use Brew to install a Ruby version manager, um, like R-B-E-N-V, mm-hmm. and then... Um, you can use RBENV to install a specific version of Ruby. So, like, install the latest one. Um, and, of course, and then sorry, kind of go talk. from there. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. Of course, I've just realized we should also, because I know we're big fans of these. I know you don't have one anymore, but we've previously been big fans of these. Raspberry Pis, if you can get a hold of a Raspberry Pi, maybe the 400, if you, if you have maybe a Windows PC that you don't want to use for coding, you don't want to, because it's a bit harder to get Ruby up and running on Windows, isn't it? A, 
I don't know. I don't think it's that hard. No? I think okay. now they have... Don't Windows have like a kind of Linux virtual oh, the thing on it now? Subsystem? You're right. Yeah. The, win- the Linux subsystem. Actually, I take that back. But that said, the Raspberry Pi 400, if you can get one, is a great little computer if you mm-hmm. want a little dev environment, right? I mean, it's a brilliant little yeah, computer. I, anyway. Honestly, if if you want to do development, get a Mac. Um, even if you like get a get a secondhand Mac, the the software and you know all all of the great software engineering software like the 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 apps that we use to make apps the best stuff is on mac like by far uh so yeah that's that's what i'd recommend and and certainly look we're both on apple silicon Macs now yeah i mean and and we've i mean we've both journeyed through that intel era of Macs, right just as a completely aside has the transition to apple silicon have you found it sped up your workflows and sped up oh yeah Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So much, so much better. Okay. Just because what, just because it's faster and yeah, literally everything is significantly faster. Um, and, and the power drawer is ridiculously small. Yeah. Like it's crazy. My, my Mac like lasts all day. That was unheard of on Intel. Oh gosh. Like, yeah. I would get maybe, maybe two, three hours at most if I wasn't really doing anything on, on my, my Intel Mac. And now, uh, my laptop runs literally all day, no problem. And, and I've I've got an old, I've got the um the first MacBook Pro that they put an M1 in the 13 inch 2020, and it's still running good. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. J- just for sort of like nerds, have a I'm bear in mind I'm running you know obviously running video you know Squadcast for video streaming. I've got a bunch of other apps up. My Mac Mini is only drawing about 24 watts of power to do all of this right now. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It really mm-hmm. is. So we'll put some resources. Uh, Treehouse does still exist, uh, and they do still have a lot of Ruby courses, so we'll put a link in there. Of course, we have no affiliates to any of these, and we don't have an Amazon affiliate, so we put all the books into the show notes. But, Joel, thank you for that, because I hope people will get something there. I mean, I guess the biggest question is, obviously, I think you do, but you enjoy solving these challenges, right? And is, is that maybe the biggest draw for you is using code, using your knowledge of languages to solve a problem that, you, you know, that, or, or make things easier for people? Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I to me, like, it's just so much fun. So programming languages, and particularly Ruby, it's just like, it's, it, is, it is like learning a new language. It's a, it's a way to express ideas and concepts and there are like these specific abstractions like classes and objects and and method calls and when you learn how they kind of fit together you realize that you can express any logic in this very clear pure language of logic and it's it's just so fun to use when when you really get into it and you know part of the part of the fun is like figuring out what kinds of concepts do I want to build in this world? Like you're trying to, you're trying to model some specific domain problem and you need to try to break that down into the, into small components, small objects that represent things. And, um, and you know, that's, that's part of the fun. Like what, yeah. How do, how do I break this problem down into the smallest things that I can make really, really easy to understand? You know, and give everything names that uh, are going to like 
make sense and ring true when you come back and you try to read it and try to understand it. Init- like when you start programming, you you often end up like writing, you know, big walls of text or like really deeply nested, you know, if conditions. So like if this and if this and if this and if that, like, and you get a bit more experienced, you learn different ways of like completely avoiding that. Um, you know, using techniques like polymorphism or I don't know, just all, all sorts of different like techniques that you can use to write your code in a clearer way that kind of expresses that logic uh, in a really nice, simple way. That's that's what I really enjoy about it. Like, it's just it's just so much fun. So, Joel, you mentioned that obviously one of the things you've been working on is these open source projects. Now, tell us a little bit about what that's like, because this is effectively code that you're, and tooling that you're building, libraries you're building to, well, basically to what, to to make things easier, to have a, yeah, you might need to help me understand this concept here. Right. Yeah, so um, when you when you write software, you, you typically will, uh, this is tricky to explain. So, there are a lot of specific problems that we try to solve that um, are actually like 99% generic problems, not specific problems. So an example might be <clears throat> rendering um, a navigation item on a web page. That's a, that's a very specific problem. Mm-hmm. But the generic problem is like just rendering something on a web page. And so what, what we try to do when, when building a library is like try to identify some of these like abstract patterns that we can use Mm -hmm. so that when you, when you want to do something specific, you can say, well, I'm going to implement this abstract thing. Um, and you get like 90% of what you're trying to accomplish from the, the library that is shared. So you've got a lot of shared code and then you can just implement the specific details about how you're using that thing. If that makes any sense at all. That, no, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. But So basically, it would... Ooh, I'm thinking of a good... Now, you're, again, feel free to yell at me. It's almost like a a template, right? Yeah, Is I that- guess so. I guess it's it's not so much a template... Because a template might... If you think about like a recipe, mm. the, a recipe tells you how to do something, but every time you use the recipe, you have to Adjust do it. all of those steps again. Oh, okay. But imagine if you could just say, um, I want to use that bread recipe and I want to tweak it by just adding one thing. I like, I just want to add some raisins into my bread, right? And you don't have to do all of the steps of that recipe. There, this is a silly analogy, right? But imagine you just push one button and you get the, you get the bread recipe and you get to just chuck in your extra addition to it. And now you have a specific implementation of bread that is like bread with raisins. Um, but you didn't have to, you know, figure out how to make bread from scratch. Well, I guess it's silly, really silly analogy. No, no, no. It makes a lot of sense because your think recipe is a step by step. You have to do this, 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 and this. Whereas, I right. mean, and this is me coming from a design background and a PowerPoint and keynote builder. A keynote mm-hmm. template, mm-hmm. for example, defines most stuff, and then you might tweak a little bit, but you've not had to go and lay out all the background, right? In fact, here's an even better example. When I do, and I say when, it is a case of when, not if. When I do YouTube um, covers, you know, the, um, what mm-hmm. do we call the, um, the 
thumbnails, YouTube thumbnails. Yeah, yeah. I've got a template in Affinity Designer that's got all the little bits to lay out that where I want the gradient, where I want you know where this layer is going to be. Right, I just yeah. don't have to drop in the extra little bits that I want for that particular video. Is that maybe a better analogy? Yeah, that, that's a pretty good analogy. So, so you might have a template, and the two things that you customize are the thumbnail and maybe some a text field. Yeah, right? exactly that. Yeah. Um, but but you don't have to recreate the whole thing from scratch every time, and that's kind of what you what you get to do when you when you build a software library. It's just um, yeah, a bit more abstract than that. Okay. And so we, again, these are solving problems that either generic problems or problem specific to a language, in this case, Ruby. Now, yeah. your two libraries, now I'm going to remember the name of one and forget the name of the other. Um, one is Flex, P-H-L-E-X. L-E-X, Flex. Yeah, P-H-L-E-X. So what what does Flex very, very simply give people? Right, so traditionally... When, you, when you're building a web application, you want to render some views to the browser. Um, this is basically the kind of translation layer between backend and frontend. Gotcha. Okay. So you've got, you've got your backend system running. You then want to have some HTML that you can send to the browser that's then going to allow the browser to download the CSS and the JavaScript and then render something that people can look at and interact with. So typically, what you would do is you would, you would write a template file and this template file would be written in kind of like a special language that is able to jump between HTML, which is the language for the front end, and say Ruby, which is the language for the back end. Or this could be PHP, it could be anything. Um, so, so PHP is kind of like this by default. Every PHP file is kind of like, um, actually, I don't know if this is, this might be different since I last used PHP. In PHP, when I used it, every PHP file was basically an HTML template that had bits of PHP scattered throughout it. But in, in Ruby world, there's this language called ERB. And basically, it's HTML, except you get to say, well, this bit specifically is Ruby. So you might have HTML would define a list. And then you'd have a bit of Ruby that says for each item, and you come out of Ruby, and then you define in HTML again, list item tag. Uh, and then you go back into Ruby, and you render the content of that list item. Anyway, so so websites or web applications would be made up of like these template files and they're typically very, very big, you know, sometimes thousands of lines long and they're very complex because there's so much nesting. Like you might go into a list of articles and then for each article you want to list, um, you know, comments and then for each comment you want to list the username and then for each username you want to list Oh, I don't know what you, you can just, you know, you can go on forever. Anyway, so what my library does is it tries to really simplify this by saying, let's think about everything on the page as an object. Um, so you might have um, like this, the list of articles is an object. The individual article is an object. The um, list of comments is an object. The individual comment is an object. And uh, the idea is that you define these things, um, these classes of things uh, in in pure Ruby, and then you can create one of these objects. So you can you can create a new instance of a class of object. Um, so you might say, like, I want to create a new article, uh, and then you give it the parameters um, you know that it requires to be an article. So maybe it's got a title and some content. You know, and these could be other components too, right? At the end of the day. And then you're able to render that object 
into HTML. Uh, so you kind of have this abstraction layer that lets you write really simple Ruby and break it down into these small components that you can use again and again. And then when you render them, they kind of produce the HTML, which is the, the code that eventually goes to the front end. Um, so this is the, the library that I spent um, seven months working on pretty much full time. Okay. Um, does that make any sense? No, it makes perfect. So instead of having to, so say, for example, you had 10 articles. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, you wanted four blocks of articles. You don't have to put the code in for each block of article. You no. just say, actually, I want something here that is an article block. And then that right, comes. Yeah. yeah. Your, your, your article, your, your list might be something like, um, articles.each do. And then you pick up, um, article. Mm-hmm. So, so you, so within an each block, you might, um, if you're iterating over a list of articles, plural, then within that block, you've got a single article that you can reach for. And then you just say like render article view and you pass in the article, right? And your article view is a completely separate file that defines the class of article view to take an article and then render out specific parts of that article. And you kind of just completely break it down into these small reusable components. Um, So I take it, that means let's say, for example, um, obviously CSS controls the styling, but let's say that the site owner says, actually, you know what, for all our articles across the entire site, we now no longer want Twitter links because Elon Musk sunk, sucks. Right. You can pull the Twitter links out of an article definite out of article yeah. block and it will affect everything because exactly, you're never yeah. hard coding. Yeah, yeah. You're not copying and pasting um the the same component implementation. You're just copying and pasting uh, you know, maybe a line of code that says render this component with these parameters. And so, yeah, you can, you can do big changes across your entire site just by changing one file, which um, massively improves, um, like developer yeah. productivity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's very, very cool. So this is flex. Now, the yeah. key part and here, the, so go on. The, the other thing is because it's entirely Ruby, mm. um, you actually are also not dealing with, a file that has three programming languages in it or like three languages in it, right? Oh. So an ERB file has Ruby in it. It also has HTML in it. It might have CSS in it. Oh. Or, uh, or you know, sometimes you have CSS embedded oh, in directly line, into yeah, HTML. In line, yeah, okay. It might mm-hmm. have some JavaScript in it embedded into the HTML as well. Right. Um, but it will definitely also have um, ERB, which is this special language that allows you to switch between Ruby and HTML. Okay, right. And so you have one file and your brain just has to like keep trying to switch between different languages. And in Flex, instead of writing HTML, you write um, Ruby, but the Ruby is like kind of connected to HTML. So for every type of HTML element that you can create, so things like headings, lists, um, list items, um, A tags, which are links, um, for every one of those things, there is a Ruby method that generates one of those things. Oh, I and see. then um, in HTML, you can then set attributes on these elements. So you might have an attribute of like class or something on your on your heading, and in Ruby, you just pass that attribute through as an argument it- to oh, the method. Oh, I see. Okay. And so you're essentially you're kind of writing like an HTML html within ruby but using all of the native ruby 
So uh, you're concepts. using Ruby elements to then yeah. when it's passed. So, I mean, and I'm sure this is not quite one for one, but similar to how when you write Markdown, right. it then gets processed. Yeah. Yeah. Really similar. Okay. Um, yeah. So you just use this special way of writing HTML in Ruby using liter- like normal Ruby. And yeah, it, ma- it makes a ton of things a lot simpler once you learn. Like if you know Ruby already and you know HTML, so it's so easy to to write HTML in Ruby, and you get to take advantage of of things that you can do in Ruby that you could never do in in HTML. Um, like one of the things you can do is you can select a whole chunk of code, mm-hmm. and you can you can like copy it, delete it, type the name of a method that summarizes what that code did. And then you define a method and paste the code into that method. And then you've kind of like extracted this complexity into a named a named concept as a method. And in your original code, you just have the name. So you can take a complex bit of code, maybe it's like 10 lines long, and you can um, you can kind of summarize it into a very simple description. And then you can implement what that description relates to in a different part. So, so you get like the ability to have like a high level overview of like what's going on. And then you can drill into the details if, if, and when you need to without being, you know, you don't not always viewing it at like 500% zoom. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So then this leads me on to the big question about open source. Cause we'll come to your other library as well. Cause that's, but, and I guess it's over. In fact, actually, before we, before we move on to the whole open source, cause both are open source. What is, what's the other one that you're working on at the moment? You've just started a new one, haven't you? Yeah. So the other library is quite tricky to explain. So this is a lot more abstract. It's called literal and it's trying to bring a bunch of ideas that I found in other programming languages and in other kind of ways of thinking about programming, like functional programming. It's trying to bring some of those ideas into Ruby okay, and putting a bit of a Ruby spin on them. Um, Got you. Okay. Yeah. So th- th- we're talking about like abstract concepts. What uh, an example of a, a concept in, in this library is um, a concept called a variant. A variant knows what it is and it also knows what it might have been. So, for example, uh, it might know that it's one, but it knows that it could have been one, two, or three. Right. And then okay. when you want to use that variant somewhere, you have to, you can't just get its value, right? You've got this result object, maybe, and it's a variant. You can't just say, like, give me the value of this object. You have to say, if this object is one, then do this. If it's two, then do that. And if it's three, do the other. And right. it kind of forces you to handle this. And so it's that kind of like really abstract uh, kind of concept that I'm trying to model. That makes it. Uh, and yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, both of these are, as we said, open source. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question. And this is not a leading question. It is a um, sort of a, a thought process. You could have said, actually, I've spent seven months more on these libraries. I want people to pay me for my hard work. I want to yeah, license Yeah, I probably should me. have said that. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure your partner's thinking, Joe, why did why did you live in a bigger house by now? Um, but, and maybe, and that's kind of a more, that's closed source where you would sell a license saying, yes, you can use this library in your code. You pay me X thousand a year to use this library. 
Mm-hmm. But you've chosen to go down the open source route. Now, first question is, why? Uh, why for you is open open sourcing is so important? What do you see as the value to open source? Because there's so much, I mean, we're, as we record this right now, the dust is still settling of Red Hat's latest uh, mm. shenanigans with the licensing. Mm-hmm. But for you, why why is open source so important? Um, I think partly because I depend on a lot of open source stuff from other people. Um, it's nice to be able to give back uh, and contribute something back to the community. And it makes it accessible for everyone. Like, it's the thing is like if everything is closed source, you can't get experience doing anything mm. unless you are working for a company that has bought a license for that thing. So it's really tricky. I don't I don't know if you could easily replace clo- like open source software with closed source software. Yeah, it does have challenge. Like it, I I think that there need to be better ways of getting funding for the open source maintenance that 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 maintainers do because it is a lot of work. Yeah. And it's kind of sad that it's you can't actually make it make it um, you know maintainable based on just people con- like companies that are using your software making donations, right? Like people just don't do that. It's not a much. thing, is it? No, I mean, yeah. some, that's not always the case. But I certainly- mean, it's it. You know, I I accept donations for my open source work, um, and I get like a hundred something dollars a month. Okay. You know, but but that covers nothing. That covers like what 20 minutes of work. I don't know. Yeah. Um like yeah. it it barely covers the the hosting costs of like running the documentation websites you. and you know, it's it, it it's just you know, it's 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 nothing compared to the amount of work that you put into it. Cuz that's cuz that's something that maybe people don't think about is when you're doing an open source project, you've still got to document, you've still got to have a presence for it and all the documentation is now. Obviously, I, I take it your projects are on GitHub. Yeah. Okay. Now, are you having to and I hope you don't mind me asking, are you having to pay for for the GitHub hosting for that? No, that- they they do all that for free. Okay. Yeah. That's good. But obviously, yeah. if you want more, you want better documentation tools, you have to pay to host that. And hosting is it's not cheap, depending mm-hmm. on what the loads. Mm-hmm. So, but the, you were telling me uh, this morning when we, because uh, just a little bit of behind the scenes, Joel will literally call me at nine this morning. We've been trying to organize this podcast, what, for months? Yeah. Joel called me at nine this morning and says, hey, do you want to record a podcast to them? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, but you were telling me one of the challenges at the moment is maybe some new EU law that would make you as the project owner who's accepting even the smallest donation mm-hmm. liable for security patches and mm-hmm. vulnerability fixes. Now, there's two sides to that, right? There's that's good for big for, for projects in general. The the accountability for fixing the code, because you know people who've been in the development world will know the issues we have with. Now, I don't know was was Log4j um, open source. I'm I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not. not sure. I need to find. Yeah. But we had the huge vulnerability in Log4j, and that was used in so much. But- yeah, it's that. It's tricky because on the one hand, it's it's kind of good to regulate, you know, commercial software to be, you know, have some expectation that it's going to be patched. But then if you define commercial software to include open source maintainers getting like $100 a month in donations that barely to barely keep the lights on, um, you know, I, I would just turn my donations off 
um, what, and if just that fund it. Me. Yeah, yeah, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't be worth it because you then have a liability. Yeah, which... I, it, you know, it's it is it is um, it is all entirely volunteer based. Like, I don't feel that I have to do this, um, and I and I am getting benefits from it. Right, um, writing open source software, sharing open source software um, means that you get to talk to lots of people. Yeah. Um, you get a lot more um, attention. You have a great piece of portfolio um, that you can use to hopefully land better jobs, that kind of thing. And it's also just really fun. So that's why I do it. Um, I wish I could spend more time working on open source stuff. But yeah, unless unless people are going to pay for it, it's just it's just not going to happen. And again, you've got then, and you're, so you, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, you as singular entity, Yep. Human being, Joel Drapper, doing an open source project. Very different to the likes of, and I'm going to use Nextcloud, I'm going to use um, right. uh, NetGate, who maintain PFSense, um, as examples. They have whole teams of paid staff. Even though it's open source, these are paid staff members, paid developers working on their open source projects. Yeah, and you could say, well, they, then they should be liable for you know patches and stuff like that. And, but if you make... If you're not careful, they could end up just like not contributing to open source, right? And that would be way worse. Like, it would be it would be way worse than having them contribute to open source, but you use it at your own risk. I honestly, I think that there just needs to going back to this like regulation. Mm. There needs to be a way around that. It's like if if you're using this under a license that says use it at your own risk, there are no guarantees to then 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 that. That shouldn't it shouldn't be applied. No, now of course we're not. Just to be clear, we are not saying that it's it's okay to not patch vulnerabilities in in your code. Yeah, we're just saying that maybe it doesn't. It shouldn't be as heavily regulated when it's going to affect individuals who are maybe getting as you know, like Joe, only a hundred dollars a month. That doesn't cover your time. Your and I hope you don't mind. Again, your primary source of income is your paid contractual work right right yeah you know but not i wouldn't say my primary piece of value created like i create a lot of value at the job that i work mm. but i think i create more value in the open source that i do um and you know because it's affecting everyone that uses this software in all of the companies that they work for um so i d- definitely am creating more value in that kind of work it's just somehow it just it there doesn't seem to be a way for that to kind of follow through and actually mean that you can get paid to do that which kind of sucks so i mean you talk about value for yourself joe and you know your current role they found you through your open source through flex right yeah like like i said it's it's a great way to kind of get your name in front of people but just it's it's all very indirect. So, Joel, look, this has been a really interesting discussion. I think open source tools and open source frameworks like Flex are wonderful. I I think it should absolutely continue. And I guess if people do build stuff and feel that it would be valuable, would you encourage them to open source their work if they can? Yeah, I mean, if if you're building something to use yourself anyway, you may as well make it open and let other people contribute to it. Like... (laughs) 
That's well, because I mean, have you, I mean, final question for you, because obviously with it being open source, that means people can make um, contributions and, and pull requests to have their code merged into yours. Right. Do, do you get active contributions into Flex? Yeah, yeah, ton of stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, there there are loads of people. I think I think over twenty people have have contributed. I think it's probably even more than that. That's brilliant. Joel, as, I mean, I always enjoy our chats when we're not podcasting, but this has been particularly enjoyable. And I really enjoy, I hope, I hope people have found some value in our discussions and some encouragement. Go and, if you want to get into coding, go and check out the resources we've, we've put there. Uh, Joel, you've got a website, a newsletter thingy, haven't you? That's, um, yeah. do you want to tell people where they can find more of your, your sound wisdom? Yeah, so um, so you can follow me on Mastodon. I'm Joel Drapper at ruby.social. Um, you can also um, check out my newsletter, which is at namingthings.org. Uh, and if you're interested in the Ruby podcast, that's uh, rooftopruby.com, I think. Um, and, and, you know, we, um, so you, just to just, we always ask this question now. You're not, are you completely off Twitter now? Are you done? Pretty, pretty much, yeah. I, I, I still use it to reply to it people every so often right but it's not an active yeah it's, i'm not it's actively posting so bad so folks please do drop us comments on the post come and join our discord i think i think we've got yeah we've got a development um i think we've got at least a web development one we've got a web development channel in the discord now i'll put another one for coding as well come cool. and join discussions in there we can we're gonna make we'll make it a forum style post i'll I'll, I'll i'll join the discord and um and spend a bit of time in there this week That'd be awesome. We will, uh, or the, the week after we publish this. Yeah, the week. But yeah. so, but for for you listening, that means the week after this comes out for us, that might be. It's probably going to be a couple of weeks because um, you know schedules and stuff. But yeah, come and join me. Discord. Drop us an email podcast at crosswires.net. And any questions you have, um, Joel. I mean, if people send in questions, you're happy for them to be forwarded over. Yeah, sure. Awesome, Joel. Thank you so much for your time, as always, uh, folks. We'll roll the outro. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cross Wires. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please drop us a note over to podcast at crosswires.net. You can also drop us a comment on the post or if you're a good pod user, why not start a discussion there too? You can also join our new Discord server at crosswires.net forward slash Discord. We've got forum channels for each episode and we'd love you to join the discussion there. You can also follow us on Mastodon at crosswires at mastodon.social. And of course, you can find the show in all the good podcast apps and all the really bad ones too. More of our content, head on over to crosswires.net slash YouTube for all our videos and keep an eye on our Twitch channel at crosswires.net slash live or upcoming streams. If you like what you heard, please do drop a review in your podcast directory of choice. It really does help spread the word about the show. And of course, if you can spare even the smallest amount of financial support, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can support us at ko-fi.com slash crosswires. That is ko-fi.com slash crosswires. Until next time, thanks for listening.